Welcome to Beyond Prisons, this is Jay. This episode we have a special treat for you as Brian and Kim got the opportunity to interview Mariam Kaba. Kaba is an organizer, educator, and curator. Her work focuses on ending violence, dismantling the prison industrial complex, transformative justice, and supporting youth leadership development. She is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots organization with a vision to end youth incarceration. She was a member of the editorial board for Violence Against Women, an international and interdisciplinary journal from January 2003 to December 2008. She is a founding advisory board member of the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and she's a member of Critical Resistance Community Advisory Board. Kaba currently organizes with the Survived and Punished Collective, and in addition to organizing and serving many other organizations, she is an educator and also runs the blog Prison Culture. Absolutely thrilled to have you here. I think it's just, you know, an honor um, that that you could join us and and give us some of your time. So we're going to go ahead and, you know, just dive right in um, and ask you, you know, to tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. Sure. I run an organization called Project NIA, which I started in 2009. Project NIA is an abolitionist organization that is committed to uh, the eradication of youth incarceration in particular, um, using a transformative justice approach. Um, So that's been my, like, main work for the last eight years. I'm also involved uh, in several other formations that I've uh, helped to co-found. So the most recent of those is a formation called Survived and Punished that works with and in partnership with criminalized survivors of violence who are usually fighting cases that involve them using violence or survival tactics in order to live. Um, So that's the other organization that I'm doing a lot of recent work with, um, which is Survived and Punished. My, you know, trajectory of my work, I've been doing anti-criminalization work for a couple of decades now, so I've been working on these issues for a long time. I... um, you know, came out of doing work around gender, anti-gender-based violence work, uh, anti-domestic violence and sexual violence work. Uh, and, like, it was through that work that I became interested in abolition. Um, and that's a little bit about me and kind of what I'm doing in a very discreet way. I'm involved in a lot of other things, but I'm not going to make a whole litany of that <laughs> for people. <laughs> well, thank you. That's great. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask you if you could tell us a little bit uh, about uh, Brescia Meadows. Oh, sure. So uh, Brescia Meadows uh, is a young woman. I came to know about her case last summer. Um, she was 14 years old when she killed her father. Um, she killed him after years and years and years of living in torment and fear. Um, Father had been 
very severely abusing her mother physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, allegations of sexual abuse uh, against his daughter, um, and constant threats of uh, threatening to kill them. So she ended up killing him in late July of 2016. I learned about the story through a friend of mine, Kelly Hayes, um, who is an organizer in Chicago who um, saw an article about the story of what happened to Brisha, or at least just talking about her case, and sent that around to a few of us who've been doing work in support of criminalized survivors of violence for many years. Um, it was not something initially that, um, you know, we, I myself was, you know, rushing to help support uh, this young woman, I kind of took the story, saw what was going on, thought obviously there's a lot more to this story than what's in the press, but I'm really busy, and so are everybody that I organize with around these kinds of issues. So after a week or so, some of us talked again and said, well, we wonder what's going on in Ohio. This happened in Ohio. The, when she was arrested, she was put into juvenile detention the uh, prosecutors were making a decision about whether to charge her as an adult or as a, in the juvenile system. And the difference between that would have been that in the juvenile system, if she'd been convicted of the charges that were leveled against her, she would have stayed in juvenile detention until she turned 21. And that's, um, you know, she was 14 turning 15 later in the year. So that would have been at least six and a half more years. Um, if she had been tried as an adult, then she was facing 25 to life for the charges that were being leveled against her, which were first-degree murder. Um, anyway, long story short is we, uh, we meaning a lot of us were part of Survived and Punished, um, and some other formations talked to each other about, you know, figuring out whether there was mobilization or organizing happening in Ohio already and making ourselves available as a resource to those people if there was organizing happening already. And what we found was there wasn't. And so there was going to be a need to reach out to local folks in Ohio to ask them if they were interested in doing organizing around this, you know, how we could be helpful as a national um, resource to them for that mm -hmm. to happen. Mm -hmm. So long story short is that's how we got involved, um, you know, all of us and I specifically got involved in um, Brisha, in trying to raise awareness about Brisha's case, um, you know, connecting with her family, finding out what the needs were, making sure that we could help cover costs that were associated with both her detention and also, you know, all the stuff that was family-related that were the collateral consequences of her detention. So that's a little bit about what, you know, Grisha is. She, uh, it ended up in December of last year that prosecutors said that they were not going to try her as an adult. So that was a first mini-victory um, to keep her in the juvenile system. Eventually, um, she was evaluated by mental health people, practitioners, which she had to pay for in January um, to the tune of, you know, almost $20,000 for a month. And then um, she was, the, the prosecutors took all that stuff into consideration, supposedly, and um, offered her a plea eventually um, sometime in May or in April, end of April. And uh, Brisha and her family decided to take that plea. She had a, a plea of, you know, we were, 
prepping for a trial in May, and that ended up mainly being a conversation in front of the judge about the plea deal. Um, and she, her plea basically is that she would spend um, a couple of more months in juvenile detention, and then she would be moved to a mental health facility for six months. Um, and then the mental health facility has the right to decide that she's ready or not ready to be back out into the world along with the court. Um, and then she eventually would be, quote-unquote, free, eventually also able to hopefully expunge her record. Um, so that those were the terms of the plea deal. Her family is very excited about that, very relieved, something that I obviously understand. Um, for our part, the Free Brisha campaign is an abolitionist-focused campaign. We have a different view, but we don't impose that ideology or that philosophy onto people we work with. We really follow the lead of the families and the people who are directly impacted, who do what they need to do in order to survive, and we support those decisions. But we don't have to agree that, um, you know, Mm -hmm. putting somebody in involuntary mental health facility for six months um, where they have to come up with the money for that, we don't agree that that's not a form of jailing. We think it is. It's another Mm -hmm. form of, you know, forced confinement, which we're against, um, but we understand why Grisha chose this, and we, uh, it's our understanding, and my connection, I connected with her on a couple of, uh, like, about three weeks ago, and, you know, she seems to be doing well in that setting as well as you could imagine. It's much better for her than juvenile detention, where she was on suicide watch more than once, so she really hated it there. That's a little bit about her. Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to talk a little bit more um, or have you talk a little bit more about Brisha Meadows. I read the, the article in Quartz uh, from earlier this year where you discuss the costs of her defense, right? Including the cost of securing expert witnesses and the cost of the mental health evaluation and treatment costs at this private mental health facility. And, and I would love to hear you say something more about, you know, the the financial burden associated with having someone, a loved one in prison, but how specifically in, in this case, how you um, how you describe that. I found that, you know, really one of the things or issues that we don't often uh, discuss. Sure. Well, I should say, um, you know, Breach is not the only young person I've, uh, you know, worked to support over the years. I spent a really long time working with young folks who are in conflict with the law. Um, and for all of them, you know, not just for Breach, the, the, you know, those spaces that they're incarcerated in make them worse. Um, they have a lot of obviously mental health challenges as a result. If they didn't have it going in, which many of them do, um, going into detention or prison, they certainly have it when they're there and when they're coming out. Um, so, you know, are certainly facing those kinds of things, those kinds of mental health challenges. Um, that means that they need to get um, some sort of treatment or some sort of intervention for that. Um, one of the things that I think people don't understand about when, you know, it's often said that um, families do the time with the person who's doing time, and mm-hmm. that that's something that I don't think people really understand. It's one person's incarceration is everybody's captivity. You know, mm-hmm. it's everybody's, it's the impact is widespread. The ripples are large. 
So um, an example would be Risha's mother lost her job in the process of this whole thing. And she lost her job because for a lot of reasons, right? Like she had to keep going to court to go and support her daughter. She had to go and visit her daughter. She had to take time off all the time. She was already in a precarious uh, a precarious job, you know? So when she lost her job, then that put the whole entire family's uh, financial situation on the cliff, right? Which is like now we don't have money coming in. We're probably about to lose our home. That's going to lead to homelessness, which will compound our precarity and it just becomes this vicious cycle for the entire family. Well, the young person who is now in detention knows that their family is in that situation mm-hmm. and often then feels totally like they caused it, right, like mm-hmm. because of their actions, and then that leads to their guilt and a further re-traumatization, right? Mm-hmm. And so these things are going on. So aside from just the money that you have to keep putting out for if you get up, if you are even lucky enough to be able to get a private attorney, um, you know, in a lot of cases, people who take on for Prisha in particular, the lawyers who took out on her case were pro bono. They mm-hmm. stepped in and you know took the case pro bono. But what that means is that you're then responsible for covering all the costs. Mm-hmm. So the state doesn't come in and cover the costs for your expert witness, even as paltry as that some might be. You don't get the benefit of all of that stuff. You cover your own court costs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the pro bono part of the legal team is great, but there are all sorts of other costs that are affiliated and associated with you when you are in the criminal punishment system. Um, you know, the other part is like the lost you know, not just the lost income from your family side, but also the fact that your siblings who now are traumatized because you're no longer there. And in the case of Brisha, that was the case, that her siblings didn't actually get to visit her at the mm-hmm. detention center. They weren't allowed. Um, and because some of them were underage. And so they only got to see her when she went to the mental health facility for that one month evaluation in January. They got to come in and meet her and hang out with her, and they didn't have to be on, a, you know, a, a list of, like, only two people can show up for you at this particular time of day at the mm-hmm. time that the facility mm-hmm. chooses that may or may not be actually uh, really uh, convenient for you and your schedule as the family members, right? So there are a whole bunch of things that are associated, really, with um, with incarceration and criminalization that most people don't see. And if the truth is, most people don't see it because oh, there's still a lot of shame around what happens to people who are caught up in the system or in conflict with the law. There's a lot of societal shame around it, and that's internalized by the people who are close to that person, you know, the, the pe- for people who have loved ones who are incarcerated. Not everybody wants to trumpet that to the world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not so there are lots and lots of layers um, mm-hmm. to what it means to end up being criminalized and incarcerated that aren't just about the person who is criminalized or incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, you know, actually, in, in thinking about Brisha's case and, and other cases like hers, I wanted to talk about some of those layers a little bit. You know, when we're talking about young survivors of domestic violence, very often we see situations where, uh, you know, a child may try to run away from home and gets caught by law enforcement or they can't get help because a parent doesn't report the abuse to the proper authorities. They may end up separated from their family, which can increase that traumatization. And at the same time, we also see prosecutors 
um, like you mentioned, you know, considering or even going uh, the extra mile to try a child as an adult for an act committed in self-defense, which not only means harsher charges and sentences, but can mean incarceration as an adult as well. And I was just wondering if you had anything to say about sort of this contradictory legal regime that kids are put in, where their options are so limited while they're experiencing this trauma and undergoing this abuse. Um, and then the penalties for acting out in self-defense um, become so hard on them. And I'm just curious if you have anything to say about that or about sort of more broadly our society's attitude towards children in these situations, particularly and particularly children of color. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that I don't think anybody would be surprised to know that our, you know, the way that our culture has evolved and based on the long histories of oppression that we live under still, the afterlife of, um, that, you know, particularly kids of color and particularly black kids are not kids. They're not children. So the conversation about children kind of is moot in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. The idea is that those young people are basically uh, criminals in training. So the punitive levels of the state and the, the levers of the state are come down on them to the full extent. Um, you know, I think that uh, there's always been a contradiction between um, black people in particular and Native people in some respect as well that who are often um, treated as though like they are less than human, they're dehumanized certainly, mm-hmm. um, and so their agency is stripped from them, but when they are caught up in the system, then they have complete agency. Exactly. Um, they yeah. are completely responsible for any actions that are seen as transgressive um, of the law um, or transgressive of whatever norms are set up as the main norms to uphold. So that's, you know, that's been the way that we've handled most things, and that goes across generations. It's not just our age, you know, it's, it isn't just for kids, it's also how we treat adults who are uh, mm-hmm. people of color and in the system. So, you know, um, it's the example of, you know, uh, you know, Celia, who a young woman, a 19-year-old young woman who killed her master in 1855 in Missouri and uh, whose lawyers try to introduce uh, a law that covers free women's ability to defend themselves when they're being defiled, so to speak. Um, and the response is, no, actually, Celia is property, not person. So you know, how can you transgress against your own property? So you really, she's then unrapeable, but she can actually Mm -hmm. be charged, which she was with a capital case where she's charged with killing her white master and then she hangs for it. So on the one hand, she doesn't actually have a self that's worth defending, but on the other hand, she can be completely liable and responsible and harshly punished for take actions that she took in self-defense. So that is a, you know, that's a long history, right? That's not new. Not, right. That's not going to end today. Um, there's, you know, people aren't really addressing, people don't address that when they think about what needs to be, quote, reformed. You know, what needs to be uprooted is a whole punishment mindset and it's white supremacy and it's a whole lot of things that make it so that it's very, very hard for people who find themselves in conflict with the law and are people of color, poor, uh, you know, trans, uh, disabled, whatever is an additional burden uh, based on oppression and domination. But it's very hard for those people to find a way to find any form of actual, quote, justice within a system that's just profoundly, inherently unjust. 
Absolutely. I couldn't imagine anybody saying it any better than that. That was tremendous. Thank you. Um, you know, to that to that point, um, you know, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the work that Survived and Punished is doing on the ground against domestic violence. I know that you guys have an, a toolkit that you published yeah. online, um, and I yeah, really encourage yeah. anybody uh, who's listening to this to, to go seek that out and read into it. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about the toolkit and what went into developing it and these survivor defense committees that are discussed in it, um, just to give yeah. people some idea about what they can do in their own communities. Yes, sure. Um, so yeah, our, you know, um, the work that we, if people go to our website, um, survivedandpunished.org, they can learn more about our work. And if you, particularly if you click on our analysis and vision, you'll have a general sense of what we're trying to do. Our basic premise is that for many survivors of violence, the experiences of domestic violence and rape and other forms of gender violence are bound up with systems of incarceration and police violence, right? So we're making the case from the beginning that there's an inextricable link between domestic violence, sexual violence, and criminalization and incarceration. Um, And so that is understood many ways, right? It's understood through the idea that um, a lot of people, you know, up to 90% of some people in women's prisons um, are uh, survivors of domestic and sexual violence before they actually were criminalized or incarcerated. Um, so that, you know, that that kind of is its own pipeline into the criminalization or pipeline into the prison system is trauma and abuse in the first place. And so you see that a lot. And then when you get into that system, you are re-traumatized and re-abused and because, that's, because prisons are violence themselves, right? Um, I think people like, you know, Dean Spade, others talk about prisons themselves being serial rapists and serial murderers, right? That the prison itself is that. Mm -hmm. And so putting somebody who's already experienced a history of violence into a system that is itself violence is like an ultimate, you know, huge form of generalized violence. Um, And so we were really interested in supporting particularly survivors of violence who um, are criminalized because they are using violence to defend themselves and or are criminalized because of survival actions. Like they, for example, um, are being criminalized for failure to protect their children while they are being abused themselves or they're being uh, charged with uh, kidnapping because they took their kid away from their abuser and they were undocumented. So we're, you know, criminalizing migratory patterns, Um, the ways in which, you know, often survivors themselves are coerced by abusers into taking actions that are criminal actions and they then become criminalized through that, you know, cycle of violence that they're enduring um, that forced them into that action in the first place. So that is really what we're doing. We demand the immediate release of survivors of domestic and sexual violence and other forms of gender violence who are currently imprisoned for survival actions, including self-defense and all those other things I mentioned before. Um, also, people who are just trying to secure the resources they need to live, um, and and they're you know doing that within a context of abuse and and the history of that. Um, so, uh, people can basically go to our site, and we have this new toolkit that we put out. We put it out in um, conjunction with a national convening. Um, 
that I co-organized uh, this summer in June in Detroit as part of the Allied Media Conference. Uh, the first, the, the day before it, there are all these institutes that you can offer, and we offered one called No Perfect Victim, which was uh, a national a gathering of people who are doing work around the issue of criminalized survivors and also people who are criminalized survivors themselves doing work. So, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to bring and fly in, um, you know, Marissa Alexander, who was finally free um, officially of, of her house arrest in January of 2017. So Marissa was able to join us and Cheryl Baldwin, who was also criminalized and had a defense campaign help her get free. Um, we also had Nanhee Joe, who's also a criminalized survivor who had a defense campaign. So we were lucky enough to have all these people who we'd all in various ways worked to help free be with us in that space. Um, we had Miss Major um, be able to come and join us um, as a formerly criminalized survivor. And so a whole bunch of really cool folks. Um, and we, we talked about a whole series of things. And in advance of that gathering, we put out this toolkit, which is a summary of, and of the learnings that many of us have as a result of organizing to uh, to defend the lives of criminalized survivors and to create freedom campaigns or defense campaigns as a tool and a means to do that. Um, so people can learn about like you know what we what we think works in supporting immigrant survivors, what we think works in in supporting trans survivors, um, how to do media work? Um, like, how do you engage with the media around these cases? How do you work with the legal team, which is very tricky and very difficult? How do you make sure that you're raising money in a way that allows you to also be building a base of folks who want to continue to support this person when they're quote-unquote free, even though people are never completely free? So, you know, so all of that um, is in the toolkit. We invite people to look at it. It's something we wish we had had when we started years ago, um, and so we tried to put that together. And if people go to our site, they can also see um, videos and uh, interviews that were done at No Perfect Victims um, to talk, where we talk to advocates, organizers, and survivors about their experiences so they can look and see those interviews so they're all up on the website. Um, so, yeah, so that's a little bit about that. You know, we're a national formation um, that's made up of several different groups um, working across different parts of the country um, mm -hmm. to actually address these issues. So that's what Survive and Punish is about. Thank you. Um, I'd like to switch gears now and uh, talk a little bit uh, about something else that I know, you know, we always get asked as abolitionists, right? Um, people always want to know, well, what about people that have caused serious harm to others? And I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts about how you respond to this question. Well, I mean, first, I understand, I guess, why people ask the question, because we've been, you know, society has done a really good job of inculcating a bunch of fear in people, you know, and I think people think, I don't know that people know who's actually in prison and who's mm -hmm. not. Um, so there's, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation and people, law and order really has done, has done a real job, I think, on people, mm -hmm. a real kind of like brainwashing job about like who gets incarcerated, who those folks are, what that means. 
there's also a huge conflation uh, I think that people have around um, connecting crime and connecting incarceration mm. as though those things have connections to each other when even the most conservative uh, criminologists and theorists and researchers have found that uh, crime and quote-unquote um, incarceration are actually like there's the correlation between them is uh, is very faint and mm-hmm. not as statistically significant as people think. So, um, so yeah, so like you know, yeah. So I understand that, um, and I just I guess for me, uh, if people think about so sexual assault or murder, that usually happens between people who know each other really well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not. It's very rare that you have actual quote serial rapists in the what like that are portrayed on TV. That's not what most sexual assault actually is. Mm-hmm. Most sexual assault is actually not reported. Um, most people who engage in it are not actually in prison. So this idea that um, if you don't have prison, that's going to flood the universe with all these sexual predators mm-hmm. is completely not borne out by the actual empirical facts that we have going on right now. And it's a great moment to think about that when more and more people are being uh, either outed as sexual harassers and assaulters in the media through these, you know, through these revelations ever since the Weinstein uh, article in the Times. Like, can you imagine incarcerating all those men who are mm-hmm. most, they're mostly men as sexual predators? Like, what would the system have to exist? Like, what would it need to look like? For that to be the solution to a problem that is actually about systemic, structural, in, you know, inequities and power. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of, I just think people have this idea that, you know, the 5% of the people who are actually in prison for murder and rape are everybody who's in prison, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so, right. you know, the ending of prisons doesn't actually do the thing that you're thinking in your head would happen. In fact, the prison itself is such a perpetrator of sexual violence that if you are somebody who cares about ending sexual violence, you have to end the prison too. Yeah. Like that just doesn't, like these things are not separate from each other. If you are somebody who's concerned with murder, the prison is a murderer. So you have to end that too, like because it's mm-hmm. its own form of violence, right? Um, so I think that that's really a, a way of thinking about that. Um, you know, prisons doesn't prisons don't stop murder because we have murder. You know, mm-hmm. like and so you have to ask yourself the question about what are you trying to do, mm-hmm. and is it, if it's to increase actual safety, what would lead to that? What would actually give get us safe? You know, we know that it's strong relationships with each other that are based on healthy accountability is the way to go. So the question is, how do we get to that? So my interest has been in trying to figure that part of the equation out, you know, with, and I'm, I'm certainly, I'm certainly not, I don't feel in any way defensive when people, you know, kind of uh, point the finger at the abolitionists and say, well, what are we going to do about all... And it's usually like that. It's not like ever yeah. like a calm, you know, right. it's like, well, what about all the rapists <laughs> and the murderers? You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's, and, and like, I always say to people, ask yourself what's happening to you right now. 
Like, mm. yeah. why are you so agitated? You know what right. I mean? Like, what what's going on? It's because the prison and police are so in your head and heart. You, you're, you're feeling personally affronted because you think, mm-hmm. like, this these institutions matter to you quite a bit. And the question is, like, why do they matter so much to you? Are they doing what they say they're doing? Can you, like, you know, are they keeping the world safe? Like, that's just, I'm just asking you to think about that, to yeah. answer that question yourself. If you feel like these institutions are working well and doing exactly what it is that you hope they do, then you shouldn't be mad at people who are trying to, like, you know what I, like, what, yeah. like then you're fine. Like, you just are living in the world that exists. Mm-hmm. But if you're somebody who thinks these things are actually damaging and you think them, quote, working is actually in working to, like, further oppress and cause more violence, then you're interested in something else. And mm-hmm. then, like, you and I can have this conversation about that. Like, we can talk, right? And I also want to say that abolition is a collective project. It isn't an individual project. Even though we individually are doing abolitionist acts on a daily basis, whether we know it or not, Mm. it is a collective project, which means that one person is not responsible for coming up with, quote, the solution. Absolutely. We have to come up with a solution based on our cultures and our communities. and, And it's, again, based on our needs, our desires, our wants. So mm-hmm. me standing up there and making a big speech to you about abolition and as a, as a lofty means zero. It's mm-hmm. like, what does that mean in your life, in your world, in your context, in your mm-hmm. community, with your people? How are you practicing abolition? And what is then, like, how are you getting to your ultimate goal if your ultimate goal is more safety? So I guess, you know, so I'm like, you know, I when people say, what about the rapists and the murders? I, I really want to say, well, what about them? Because mm-hmm. they're like pretty much already not in prison. Exactly. Like if you want, exactly. you know, so if you, like I don't, like we're you're kind of we're already living, if you want to call that abolition, we're already living that kind of abolition. Mm-hmm. So that's why abolition for me is not about just, it's not mainly even about the destruction or dismantling of the prison and the police and surveillance. So that's critically important. It's creating the conditions necessary so that those things don't need to exist. So that's a very different project. And that's a very different angle. And that's something that I'm, you know, that allows for a freedom to do a whole bunch of things that aren't even only and mainly about trying to end prisons or policing or surveillance. That's about making sure people have living wages. That's about making sure people have actual housing, making sure people have good educations, making sure people have environmental health and not environmental racism, making mm-hmm. sure we don't all die on the planet. Like, all these things are abolitionist projects. That's the thing that I think folks, most people who aren't abolitionists in terms of, like, people who've studied, who have practiced, who organized under an mm-hmm. abolitionist concept, uh, set of, of, of framework and, and ideology, like, I think most people just kind of think about it as an analytic exercise. But yeah. for me, it's always been actual practice. Like I'm an organizer and mm-hmm. an educator. 
first. And that's where I've, uh, you know, kind of um, I've learned about abolition through practice. And, yes, I've read a lot. And I've read people that I now have come to become friends with and respect, you know, but that's not the, that wasn't the gist of how I came to that. You know, I came through action and through looking for something that would actually under, like change the circumstances that I was encountering that were super frustrating to me when I was working with survivors of violence, right? So, yeah, so I think that's what I would say about, like, you know, what about the sociopaths and the dangerous people and, you know, all this other kind of thing, and this is completely unrealistic. Oh, really? Is the current system realistic? Mm -hmm. Like, really? I don't understand that. To me, like, of course it's realistic. Like, it's the most realistic thing there is. Mm-hmm. Your cynicism is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, Seriously. so, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I saw something, uh, I, I think someone retweeted something you posted the other day, and it just, uh, it, the last few days, it just really resonated with me and, and just has helped me tremendously. And, you know, there, there are a lot of times when I'm kind of, like, lurking on Twitter, um, not necessarily engaging uh, for a lot of reasons, but you know, I saw mm-hmm. this. Uh, it is something you wrote about hope uh, being, mm-hmm. you know, a discipline, um, and yeah. and it just, it, it, I got it. It made my day, um, and if right. not my week, uh, absolutely, because it, it's something that, you know, it, it is easy to be, you know, to get down um, on everything that's sure. going on. It's it's really easy to kind of look around and be like, oh my god, everything you know, set it all on fire, and you know, let's just <laughs> be right. done. Yeah. Um, especially right now, and I think that you know, um, plugging in with folks and reading things and listening to things that are affirming and uplifting and do you know allow you to focus on the hopeful side of things are part of abolition. And I, you know, um, I'd like you to say something about that. Um, but I have, mm-hmm. you know, another part to that question, because I think they're, they're both related, or at least in, in my thinking, they're related, which is about self-care for um, those of us doing this work. And that's something that, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about as well um, with the folks that I'm connected with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, um, so I always tell people, for me, um, like, hope doesn't preclude feeling sadness or frustration or anger or any other emotion that makes total sense. Like, that's mm-hmm. not, like, hope isn't an emotion, mm-hmm. you know? Um, like, and hope is not optimism. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, so I think that, for me, understanding that is really helpful in my practice around uh, organizing, which is that, you know, I believe that uh, the, that there's always a potential for transformation and for change. And that is in any direction, good or bad. And my, um, where my, you know, uh, the idea of um, hope being a discipline is something I heard from actually a, a nun many years ago who was talking about it in conjunction with making sure that we were like of the world and in the world, right? That, that like, like living in the afterlife already in the present was kind of a form of escape, but that actually um, it was really, really important for us 
to live in the world and be of the world, and that that the hope that she was talking about was this grounded hope that um that was practiced every day that like people actually practiced it all the time um and so i i i i held on to that I heard that many years ago, and then I felt the sense of like oh my god that that speaks to me as a philosophy of living, mm-hmm. um, you know, that hope is a discipline and that we have to practice it every single day because it, in the world in, you know, which we live in, it's easy to feel a sense of hopelessness, right, that mm-hmm. everything is all bad all the time, that there is nothing is going to change ever, that people are evil and bad at bottom. You're like, that, that's just, it, and it feels sometimes like it's being proven in various different ways, right? Um, so I get that. I really get that. I understand why people feel that way. I just, I just choose differently. I choose to think a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I choose to act in a different way. I choose to, in, I choose to trust people until they prove themselves untrustworthy. And, you know, I mean, Jim Wallace, who people know is like a kind of liberal evangelical who, who thinks about uh, faith a lot and talks about faith a lot. And he always talks about the fact that Hope is really believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. And I'm like, that to me makes total sense. It's just I believe ultimately that we're going to win um, because I believe there are more people who want justice, real justice, than there are those who are working against that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, I, and I don't also take a short time view. I take a long view, understanding full well that I'm just this tiny little part of a story that already has a huge antecedent and has something that is going to come after that, that I'm definitely not going to be even close to around for seeing the end of. Mm-hmm. So that also puts me in the right frame of mind that like my little friggin' thing I'm doing, is actually pretty insignificant in world history, but it's significant to one or two people. I feel good about that. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, like I'm just like, if yeah. I'm making my, my stand in the world and that benefits my particular community of people, the people I designate as my community and I see them benefiting by my labor, I feel good about that. Like, that actually is enough for me. So I maybe, like, I just have a different perspective. And, you know, I talk to a lot of young organizers a lot. Like, people reach out to me a lot because I've been organizing for a long time. And I'm always telling them, like, your, your timeline is not the timeline on which movements occur. Mm-hmm. Like, your timeline is incidental. Mm-hmm. Your timeline is only, like, for yourself, to, like, to mark your your growth and your living, you know, but that's a, that's a fraction of the living that needs, that's going to be done by the universe and that has already been done by the universe. So when you like make yourself understand that you're really, that you're really insignificant in the scheme of things, you just are. And then it kind of, it's a freedom in my opinion to actually be able to do the work that's necessary as you see it and to contribute in the ways that you can see fit. So I think that's my answer to that. And, you know, self-care is really tricky for me um, because I'm not really, I don't believe in the self in the, in the way that people determine it here mm-hmm. in this capitalist society that we live mm-hmm. in. So 
I don't believe in self-care. I believe in collective care, collectivizing our care, um, you know, and thinking more about, like, how we can help each other to do, like, you know, how can we collectivize the care of children so that more people can feel like they can actually have their kids but also live in the world and contribute and participate in various different kinds of ways. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we collectivize care so that when we're sick and we're not feeling ourselves, we've got like a crew of people that are like our, not just our prayer warriors but like our action warriors, right, mm-hmm. who are like, thinking through with us, like, I'm just not going to be able to cook this week. And you've got a whole bunch of folks there who are just, like, putting a list together for you and bringing the food every day that week. And you're doing the same for your community, too. Like, I want that as the focus of how I do things. And that really comes from the fact that I grew up the daughter of returned migrants, you know, uh, African returned migrants. Like, I don't see the world the way that people do here. I just mm-hmm. don't. I don't agree with it. I think capitalism has actually alienating is continuously alienating us from our each other, but also even from ourselves. And I just don't subscribe. So, like... I don't, and, I, and, and for me, like, it's too much, like, with, like, yeah, I'm going to do yoga, and then I'm going to go and do, like, some sit-ups, and maybe I'll, like, you know, go to, like, you don't have to right. go anywhere to care for right. yourself. Right. You can just care for yourself and your community in yeah. tandem, and that can actually be much more healthy for you, by the way, because, like, all this, like, internalized, internal reflection is not good for people. You have to be able to have uh, yes, think about yourself, reflect on your practice. I mean, but then you need to like test it in the world. You got to be yeah. with people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, so that's important. And I hate people. So I say that as somebody who like just actually <laughs> is really antisocial. You know, and I say I hate people. I like, I don't want to socialize in that kind of way, but I do want to be social with other folks as it relates to collectivizing care. Mm-hmm. So those are the things. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's something I say quite often. So yeah, it's, <laughs> like I do identify with that. that you know, quite <laughs> a bit. It's like, oh my gosh, I hate people. But yeah, I to- I totally. <laughs> I mean, I I get it. I get it. Um, Brian. Yeah, um, man, I I loved that so much. Thank you for that uh, response right there. We don't have a lot of time left. Um, I do have one maybe sort of strange question for you, but I was wondering, um, I'd be interested to know what is on your reading list slash bookshelf right now. Um, I want to know something Hmm. that you read recently and enjoyed. That's, yeah, great question. I read all the time. So I don't have one thing on my reading shelf. I have like a hundred things on my reading shelf yeah, no. um, <laughs> all the time. So, I'm, yeah, like I'm reading three books as I speak right now together. Um, and, you know, I, I'm enjoying all three. But um, I recently, one of the most recent books I've completed is a, a book that's coming out soon written by Kianga Yamada-Taylor, edited, sorry, edited by Kianga. Um, it's called How We Get Free, yes. uh, Black Feminism and the Com- <laughs> Yeah, and Black Feminism and the Kambahi River Collective. Um, and it's what I really appreciate about the book. It's uh, it's interviews, you know, um, with the uh, founders of Kambahi and Barbara Smith and Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier. Um, and then an interview with uh, Alicia Garza, Garza from uh, Black Lives Matter. And then a statement written by Barbara Ransby. 
Kianga writes the introduction where she does a really good job situating the CRC statement, which, you know, is the first uh, text where the term identity politics is actually used. And, you know, it's a really, it's just just such an important statement um, that draws from the past and has informed the future. And I don't know that there's any manifesto in recent history that I know of, like in the last 50 years, that has done the same. I mean, you know, of course, we've got the Communist Manifesto, but that's longer term Mm -hmm. um, in the past. But in the recent past, I can't imagine, I don't know another manifesto that has had the longevity and the impact that the CRC has uh, statement had. And what I appreciate about, I have such, like, I feel like I'm totally going to, you know, I've always been impressed uh, and inspired by Barbara Smith and her work, but I I now have you, I've met for the first time through this interview that I read, uh, Demita Frazier, who I feel like is now some sort of, like, that touchstone slash long lost twin of mine, like the way she thinks and talks is like, oh my God, this is me. Oh my God, this is me. This is what I was doing the whole time I was reading this. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. You know, like I just was like cheering her as I read her interviews. So I now want to meet her so desperately. And I think I get a chance to in the next couple of weeks. I'm really excited to let her know that we're actually twins and we should be friends. But um, (laughs) so, yeah, (laughs) I'm sure she'll find that not creepy at all right it's like yeah this strange black woman is like coming up to me saying we really should be friends um but yeah so uh so yes yeah, so i read that and i thought i really was excited by it the books i'm currently reading right now i'm reading a book called the promise of patriarchy women in the nation of islam by ula taylor it's a new book that just came out last month and it kind of tells the history of women in the noi and that's very different from the histories that we've read about noi very masculinist uh focus and almost no focus on uh black women and girls so i'm reading that book and then finding it really interesting for lots of personal reasons and also, uh, you know, political reasons. And then I'm reading a book by um, Marcia Walker McWilliams uh, about Reverend Addie Wyatt, who's this like amazing, un- really just under, either understudied, appreciated, or just unknown black woman who had this breadth of experience in like with Chicago based and just like you know i've just i just discovered her about 2 years ago but this book hadn't come out yet and now i'm reading this book and i'm like how do they not know this woman you know she was a labor leader a civil rights activist she was a total feminist a suffragette like just you know uh, she turned it she oh started a church so she became like just fascinating she was a confidant of dr kings she was involved in Selma. She was involved in his Chicago campaign, the Chicago Freedom Movement. Um, just fascinating and awesome and great. Um, and then finally, I'm reading this um, kind of stories by John Edgar Wideman, um, an old book called All Stories Are True. And I always like to read, like, even if it's, uh, you know, I, I like to have some fiction Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the, some of the stuff is fiction, but it's also it's also kind of like uh, just I love how he writes. He's such a, he's such a good writer. Um, and so I'm reading I'm reading that book like in between of these other two kind of uh, more historical focus books. And I'm a big fan of like biography and history and stuff. So I read a lot of that kind of stuff. So yeah, those are those are the books that I have that you know I just read and then that I'm reading right now and I'm very much enjoying. 
Awesome. Fantastic. Definitely adding those to my list. Right? Sound great. Right. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> I just got some you know, book them. recommendations. I need to definitely start, you know, we need to contact those publishers. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. I could, you know, this interview could go on for six hours and I'd seriously. <laughs> you know, absolutely love it. But I want to say thank you so much on behalf of Brian and I, we, we really appreciate your time. We both, you know, follow your blog. We follow you on Twitter. We pay attention to the work that you're doing. And I know I've learned a great deal. I know Brian has um, as well from you years and, um, and, and we both really deeply appreciate that. And uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I appreciate that, too. And thanks for having me on. And yeah, I've been listening to your other podcasts, and I think they're great. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Can you tell folks, um, before we let you go, where they can find your work? Sure. Um, I'm mostly um, in terms of like in terms of communication or whatever. I'm on Twitter um, at Prison Culture. People can go to the blog. Though I have the last couple of years, I've really fallen off in terms of putting doing regular blogging. I've just been organizing a lot um, and that's exhausting so um, I haven't had that much time to post on that but people can find me on uh, prison culture usprisonculture.com that's my blog um, and I'll, I, I'm committing to trying to blog more in 2018 so hopefully I'll have more things up there um, that's the gist of it yeah I could be I can be found on those two platforms great okay, awesome. thank you so much for being here yeah thank you sure No problem. Thanks for having me. Oh, I do want to say one quick thing, which is if people are interested, they should, there's two uh, organizations I'm affiliated with that if people want to look into, they should, especially if they're in Chicago. Um, The Chicago Bond Fund um, that I'm on the advisory, founding advisory board for, and um, the Liberation Library, um, both are on Twitter. Uh, that people can connect with. Um, their work is really important, and I have a lot of, you know, I have. I just feel like everybody should know what they're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. No Thank problem. You. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Take care.